episode 85. This is the Business Generals Podcast. We chat with amazing entrepreneurs every single week to help you maximize your startup business ideas, take control of your personal finances, and get the most out of your professional career. Subscribe to the show and check out businessgenerals.com for full show notes, free tools, and killer resources to help you on your journey to maximizing your business dreams. And now, your host, Davis Mutabwa. Welcome and thank you for joining me here on the Business Journals Podcast where I chat with amazing entrepreneurs. Thank you for joining me. I'm so glad you could join us today. If you haven't done so already, remember to click subscribe on your podcast player so that you do not miss an episode. It's Davis Mutawa here, your host. I'm super excited to bring you today's feature guest, Mr. Rob Jacobs. Rob, welcome to the Business Journals Podcast. Delighted to be on with you, Davis. Thank you so much for being here, Rob. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Rob has founded and operated a number of businesses in the health and fitness industries and other entrepreneurial businesses, including Unsit, which is an innovative solution to transforming the office spaces around the world. I am very excited to hear your story, Rob. Um, before we kick it off, just let us know who is Rob outside of business. Well, outside of business, I'm a proud father of two uh, budding young children, one in just off to Barnard College in New York, a daughter and my son, uh, a high school uh, athlete and a uh, uh, fine young, young man here in, here in Los Angeles, uh, happily married to my wife, Ann Gentry, who was the founder and creator of a, of a well-known company around the world called Real Food Daily. Some of your listeners, if they've ever been to Los Angeles, might have uh, passed through her restaurants uh, where she was a real pioneer in the field of uh, organic vegan cuisine. And mm. uh, that's my wife. And um, I'm a, I'm a you know avid skier and uh, outdoorsman. Uh, enjoy backpacking and uh, and fishing and hiking and um, uh, yeah. So there's the there's a the little bit of the personal. That's good. So you've been uh, been in business for a while. I would imagine how long would you say you've been full time in business for yourself, Rob? Well, I'm one of those uh, people who I, <laughs> nobody would hire me when when I was young. So I had to start my own company to, to earn a living and. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've done that uh, numerous times. You know, I grew up in a family. My father was an entre- business entrepreneur, started in closing computers back in the, I don't want to date myself, but he started in the late 1950s and was the first to be building uh, large cabinet enclosures for computers. And back then, computers were the, sizes, were the size of uh, large refrigerators. And um, that company grew with the, uh, with the NASA space program through the 1960s. And um, so I always saw my dad jetting off to work and scrambling to meet payroll and trying to solve the, the, you know, the problems that would come up each day. And that's just all I knew growing up was somebody starting businesses. He also built uh, EV electric cars back before when we had lead acid batteries. This was in the 1970s during the first oil air, air boil embargo. And Gas prices went through the roof, and he came up with the idea of building electric cars. And we actually built a few in the garage, but uh, he lost a lot of money on that one. But it was a ton of fun. Now I'm driving the proud driver of a of a couple of electric cars here in, in Los Angeles. So it's it, I wish my dad had been or lived long enough to see the day when it, uh, it came mm. to market. So I grew up in a family where my dad was often starting businesses. My my brother did the same, and um, um, I, I worked in a lot of those companies growing up. And um, started out, uh, I got into the exercise and fitness field just uh, largely had a personal self-interest uh, frankly but but started in the got into the equipment business and I, I don't know if you want me to just dive in and go down that first business uh, startup path or so so maybe before we do that just tell us um what are your core revenue streams at the moment and then we'll step back into how that all sort of um unfolded 
Yeah, well, no, in, in my life, it's the, uh, the, the, the Unsid business is still in the startup phase, so it's a, it's a small revenue stream. But I own another company uh, that we, we supply replacement parts for the health and fitness uh, industry for health clubs and fitness centers. That, that's my, uh, as a uh, 50% uh, stock partner in that company, that's my personal uh, core revenue stream. Okay, sounds good. So how did the journey start for you? Um, you've been in the fitness world. Um, so walk us through how things started for you right at those early days. Yeah, well, like I say, I was, uh, for, for personal interest, uh, got into health and fitness and exercise and uh, went back to college, studied exercise physiology, wandered into a retail store that a friend of mine owns selling uh, high-end home exercise equipment. And ended up uh, going to work in the store in, in a retail establishment, outfitting mostly movie stars with personal gyms and home fitness centers. Out of that, tinkering around in the store, I was fooling around with motorized treadmills. And I noticed that the treadmill was the only piece of exercise equipment in the store that actually made you exercise. You had to keep up with a moving belt. So you had a way to pace a person and keep them on a very specific exercise protocol and exercise intensity. Uh, parallel at the same time, I was a big fan of the Pritikin Longevity Center here in Santa Monica, California, where they used motorized treadmills for a uh, cardiac rehab type program, and they were able to pace people through very precise exercise protocols. So I saw them being in use in other other uh, therapeutic settings, and I was fooling around mm. with them myself. And I and I noticed that you could actually get terrific results for the average person, not not the fitness enthusiast, but just the average housewife who wanted to lose weight by just walking at a moderate intensity without having to, to run or go through a high-intensity exercise program. And I started a store called The Walking Center. That was my first business startup. And that was a, a, a storefront establishment that allowed uh, housewives in Beverly Hills to come in during the middle of the day, check out a video from our video library. Now, this was pre-internet, pre-streaming media. Uh, if you wanted to watch a movie, you had to get a... Uh, you had to get a videotape, a VHS videotape, and I had a library of them that I had uh, rented from the local video store. So you come in, check out a movie, watch a movie for an hour or two in the middle of the day and walk on the treadmill. People started getting terrific results, and uh, yes. we, primarily with weight loss, and they felt better. So the store became a, a hustle bustle. It was busy all day long with, like I say, uh, middle-aged housewives with nothing to do in the middle of the day. So they were walking on the treadmill, watching movies. The results they got were so good, they started buying the treadmills from me. Now, these were $4,000 treadmills back at that time, which would be the equivalent of an with inflation adjustment, probably an $8,000 product today. So it was a tough sale, but it, it was people, the results were so good. And I was, you know, I was strategically located in Beverly Hills that I was suddenly selling more of these high-end treadmills than uh, any other retail store in the country. And we were representing major brands of, uh, of, of high-end motorized treadmills, uh, Precor being the primary one. So suddenly I was, uh, had this uh, bustling business retailing high-end uh, motorized treadmills to people's homes in the, uh, here in the Los Angeles area. And the establishment took off from there. We opened some more stores. We got into selling commercial fitness equipment. Um, along the way, I sold out of the retail part of the, uh, the, the business. After a number of years, the, you know, retailing became just a tough challenge with uh, various competition, lower priced uh, options and so forth. So the retail stores I sold, but we had along the way developed a service business where we were repairing and servicing all this equipment in health clubs and fitness centers. And we, uh, we kept that portion of the business. Uh, I, had a, I had a partner who I'd taken on at the time, a, a friend of mine from, uh, from school. 
And we started reselling spare parts that were required to perform fitness uh, repairs in fitness centers and health clubs. So that business started in the early, in 1992, the, the walking center business that started in the late 1980s, but the parts business uh, we, we established in 1993, actually. And we're still in that today. We've grown that business quite substantially, and we're the primary supplier of replacement parts for out-of-warranty fitness equipment in health clubs, fitness centers all around the world. That's primarily an internet-based business at this point. We do take a, provide a lot of tech support over the phone, and we ship mm-hmm. parts from a single location here in Los Angeles. Um, so, so th- and that business still uh, uh, you know, s- supports me to this day. We still continue to grow it. We're looking for strategic uh, acquisitions, actually, I- I- in that company. Um, but, but out of there along the way, I started sitting at a desk, um, as having a desk job and being a fitness enthusiast. You know, sitting at a desk is just something that makes you feel caged. You know, you want to just get up at the end of the day and, you know, get out and move again. And, you know, started developing a lot of the same ailments that uh, I'm trying to help people solve problems with now. Low back problems, uh, feeling lethargic and tired in the afternoon after you've been sitting in a chair all day long. Um, Even though as much as you work out, if you're sitting for eight hours a day, it's still tough to keep the weight off because you're spending so much time behind a desk. And I encountered the book called Get Up by Dr. James Levine. And uh, that, that's sort of the Bible of this whole business that I've started now with Unsit. But Dr. Levine is the head of uh, research into obesity at the Mayo Clinic here in the United States. And what he discovered, to summarize a, a very uh, in-depth book, is that the, the more you move, the healthier and fitter you are, the less you move, the less healthy uh, you are. And, and, and the absence of movement, when you get to zero movement, you're actually dead. So the movement is really a great meter for, for life and how, how, how alive you are. Um, but he d- gathered tremendous amount of data by putting uh, movement detectors on people's feet, on their legs, he, literally in their underwear. He developed uh, movement sensors in underwear so he could tell when people were sitting, getting up and down, movement, moving, how much they were moving. And again, the more people moved, uh, the, the, the better shape they were in. The less people moved, the more health ailments they had. And that book really inspired me. He built the first treadmill desk and made it popular. There were a couple of other people who have known to build ones before them. But, but Dr. Levine built the first treadmill desk. And I remember seeing it on TV one time and just poo-pooing it. I thought that was, that was an idea that was, just had no merit because the, there's no real exercise intensity. I'm walking on one right now as we speak, by the way, Davis, as we're conducting this interview. Right. I'm walking mm-hmm. along at about one mile an hour, probably about a two-kilometer-per-hour two clip. Um, I've taken already uh, 2,000 steps in this interview. But, but at first, I, I, didn't, I dismissed the idea because as a fitness enthusiast and somebody who studied exercise physiology, this is not really exercise. What it is, Davis, is we've gotten people up out of their chairs and off their butts and moving. And that has a tremendous benefit from a health and fitness point of view. So I, I finally embraced the idea because once I read his book, I understood how the physiology of it worked. And I can explain that later in the interview, but I started tinkering around having a background with fitness equipment and with the repair and maintenance of them and specifically treadmills. I had a unique set of skills and uh, resources to be able to start fabricating a customized treadmill meant for the task. Up to up till mm. our product came to market, the other treadmill desks on the market were simply somebody had taken a fitness treadmill and stuck it under a desk. And that served the purpose largely, but it really wasn't designed properly to work at a desk. So our product is uniquely uh, optimized and designed to, to, to work at an office desk. And um, if you want me to keep going down that path, I can describe those, those specific design features of the product. But as I said, I don't have any notes, so keep me on track here. Okay. I love, I love where this is going. So I want to take note, I guess, you talk about your, your dad being an entrepreneur who, who sounds like he was also very innovative. So I, I take it that that has rubbed off on you. And I want to pause for a second here and ask you, Rob, 
are you a scientist or an engineer or how do you sort of get that innovation in your head into practicality, especially when we come to this sort of product? My education is largely empirical and self-taught. I had just a, a minimal amount of college. My, my father was an electrical engineer by education and my, my brother is a, a soil scientist, so they're both very well schooled. But uh, lo- looking back and having raising a son who has a bit of a learning difference, he, uh, uh, he's challenged with a little bit of what's commonly referred to as dyslexia, a challenge of, of, of reading. Um, mm-hmm. And so I've learned a lot about that by, by helping my son get through school, and he's in a special ed program. But looking back, I realized that, that I had the same condition. We just didn't have the the uh, knowledge and understanding of these conditions back in those days. So guys like me managed to get through school by, by hanging out with the smart girls at lunchtime and discussing with them what was in the book that I was supposed to have read the prior <laughs> night. And then I'd march into English class and I'd lead the discussion. And I was able to, to knock out a fairly decent paper or essay about those books. But again, largely by picking the brains of, of the people who had read the material. And, and believe it or not, there's a lot of us out there when you look into these uh, – uh, famous people with dyslexia, you come up with uh, names like Richard Branson and Steve Jobs and uh, you know Leonardo mm. da Vinci and these types of people. So, so I didn't do well in school uh, through book knowledge, um, but I hung yeah. out with my – again, my father was an engineer. My brother was a scientist. Um, you know, I, I used to you know, repair cars in the garage when I was a teenager. And so, so I learned all the mechanical and how problems got solved that way. And then on the business front, uh, my dad just threw me in the fire and I had to survive. I, we had one small company, a little, little parts distribution company back in, in the day. And I got thrown in having to balance the books. This was pre-computers where everything was done mm. by hand on big ledger sheets. And I remember balancing checkbooks with, a, with, a, you know, with an adding machine with a roll of tape that was coming out and being up all night. You know, sweating, thinking the company's going to run out of money if I didn't do my job. So, so I you know learned accounting and bookkeeping and, and these various aspects of, uh, of business just uh, the, the old-fashioned way. So, 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 so that was my background, and and then and then you know, I applied that in the fitness movement. I saw what was going on. I got into the exercise and fitness movement during the Jane Fonda aerobics era. So I, I understood what Jane Fonda was doing. She had picked up on some science by a guy named Kenneth Cooper, who was the first uh, medical doctor to develop a. Uh, health and fitness program for the Air Force cadets here in the United States. And he developed this concept of aerobic exercise, but nobody had heard of it till Jane Fonda, the movie star, came along and started a, an exercise, a celebrity-based exercise program around it. Um, but, but I understood, mm. I learned what, what was going on with it just by reading those books, watching those videos, um, and, uh, and hanging out in those, in those program environments. I did the same thing at the Pritikin Longevity Center. That was a place that was all medical doctors staffed it. Um, all, all scientific researchers. I managed to sort of sneak my way in under the radar and got a job there in the uh, exercise fitness department, but would spend all my lunch times and spare time, you know, in, in the medical offices talking with the doctors, trying to understand how these, how this exercise program applied to, uh, to health and wellness. So, so my learning was, was uh, informal and it was empirical and it was uh, seat of the pants, uh, but that was the only way I was capable of doing it, given that the uh, you know, a, a bit of a, a dysfunction with, in, on the reading front. Um, that's so, amazing. And I think that's very inspirational to other people who might not have the capacity or the time or the desire to be reading um, copious amount of notes on different things and just finding innovative ways like yourself and just being clever around how to, how to get that information, how to get, you know, associate with the right people. Um, I want to I wanna talk a little bit about Having that idea, so you've read the book, we'll, we'll touch on um, the unset business at the moment because I guess that's the one that is really present that you're trying to grow now. Um, so you've, you've read the book, um, someone has done a lot of research on it, and some people have created certain types of products that are already in the market. 
and you know your first thought is this will never work but then what happened you you thought you you just you changed your mind and you and now you've created the product walk us through that middle time there Yep. So I read Dr. Levine's book, uh, which is called Get Up. It's on the shop page of the Unsit website. Um, I, I consider it the Bible of this whole uh, treadmill desk, standing desk uh, trend that we're seeing take place in offices here in America, probably there in Australia as well. And I, and I, I read through Dr. Levine's, uh, he weaves in his own personal story with, uh, with weight loss, with the research that he'd been conducting, and he fashioned the first, the first treadmill desk. So that was my inspiration. That, that got me to see that there's a huge opportunity here. Uh, the data he presented in there is just so overwhelming how many people are affected by, uh, by what, I, what we call sitting disease. Sitting disease is a term coined by Dr. Levine. So that, that right. woke me up to the market opportunity. And from a business mm. perspective, you know, obviously that's, that's the first thing. Is there a market? And the market is gigantic mm. by my assessment. Now, what I'm finding as we start up is uh, we're still in the early adoption phase where there's early adopters taking this on. Like, like Steve Jobs looked around and saw there's a giant market for computers, but, but there was nobody buying them when he started. He, the market had to, still had to emerge. So I, you know, I, I, I consider us in the, the same, we're sort of in the early 1980s of, of the computer revolution where, where there were a few mm. you know, early adopters and, and uh, nerdy geeks who were buying these things. But, you know, it, it took you know, some design and some proper fashioning and, and then a little bit of, uh, you know, the fire has to spread before it really, really takes off. So we're still in that phase. But I saw the market opportunity from Dr. Levine's book because he presents how many people are afflicted by sitting disease. And the symptoms of sitting disease, there's a whole variety of them. It, they, they, they range from having a bad back to sciatic nerve pain down the back of your leg, you know, tight shoulders. These are all orthopedic problems, but they're primarily caused by sitting on a you know, right angle contraption for eight hours a day. Then you have all these metabolic problems, which people are more familiar with. Uh, we now, we've now crossed the one-third marker in the United States where one-third of the United States population is obese. One-third. And, mm-hmm. and one-third of the population, that same third, is now either diabetic or they're pre-diabetic. Pre-diabetic means your, your blood sugar is out of control to the point where, where you're, you're going to need medication in a few, just a few short years. So they're either, either pre-diabetic or diabetic. One-third, that's 100 million people. Now, I look at those numbers and say, all of those people need my product. That's 100 million people. They don't know it yet. I know it. Yeah. I know it, but they don't know it. And, and so, so when I see these kinds of numbers, you know, you know, you got a third of America, and that's those numbers are going to apply to the rest of the world as they become industrialized as well. And sitting mm-hmm. is a primary driver for that. Uh, heart disease, um, various kinds of cancer. We're, we're looking at the problem though. We're, we're marketing our product more to the mental, creative side. That that the mind is sharper and, and thinks better when you're up on your feet moving than it is sitting in a chair. Now that's a little bit of a softer science, but there are some studies on there. We have them on our website. I can talk about them. But, but, I, but those are the opportunities I saw in Dr. Levine's book that, hey, you know, what, what, if a, what if a company could get their workers to be a little bit more productive mentally? How much would they pay for a, for a, a product to help their, their workforce uh, be more creative, more productive? I mean, you, had, you put a price tag on that. So, so I saw that from reading Dr. Levine's book. Now, what's interesting is a lot of people reading that book may not have interpreted it that way. They may just interpret it as a, as a self-help book or something. But Again, and you know, perhaps this is this speaks to my learning disability. Is that when I read a book like that, it takes me hours. I mean, it took me a week to plow through it, and I work. I read very carefully, very slowly, and I only I only read well on nonfiction on stuff like this. But I'll read a couple of pages and walk around and ponder it. Read a couple of pages, walk around and ponder it. So, so I, I just take different things away, I suppose, from a book like that. But I saw it as a business opportunity when I got through it. Right. So 
I love what you're saying. So you've, you've identified, here's some research. Um, what's the market opportunity? And you found, you know, the, there's a big medical sort of um, opportunity for people in, in terms of obesity, et cetera. And you know that, that, you know, you've quantified that number, 100 million people. That's a quantifiable number. And then you've, you've worked at, am I going to angle it at that uh, market proposition or am I going to take it into the corporate scenario? And if I take it to the corporate scenario, how do I re-angle that so that it's more appealing for, for our targeted orders? So I love that. So now you've found how you can target. You know, I know you've, you've talked about you know, law firms and you know, accounting firms and other corporate organizations starting to, to be adopters of this product. But step me back. What did you then do next? How did you create it? Where did you go? Okay, the next thing was I just started experimenting for myself. Just for, I just wanted to try it out and sort of validate the idea for myself personally. So I started tinkering around in my house with a treadmill desk. I took, a, I had a, an old treadmill that I pulled out uh, that actually was using in the, at that time I was, I had my, I used to have my kids watch TV. The rule in our house is if you're going to watch TV, you had to walk in the treadmill so they wouldn't be sitting around. So I took a, and I, then I just took a piece of plywood from the garage and I took my carpentry skills and I, I cut a piece of plywood and screwed it down to the top of the, the treadmill frame. It was a terrible product, but it, it worked. It, it kind of proved out the concept. Then I just started improving on that. You know, I got a better piece of plywood. I got some levelers to make the, ha- the, the height right. Um, I started putting accessories in the desk to get the height of my computer monitor right. And um, so, so there, there you have it. I was just, you know, after about uh, you know, a couple of months of that, I had fashioned a pretty good treadmill desk. Uh, but then I started noticing what was wrong with it and where, where, I, where it really needed to go. Um, I noticed mm. that it wasn't wide enough to really fit all the things I need on my desk. You needed a, most treadmills are narrow because you're just running in one path for exercise. So I realized the mm. treadmill needed to be much wider so I could use and walk laterally left and right across the width of my desk and use everything on my desk. I also noticed the treadmill didn't need to be so long because I'm walking so slowly at a treadmill desk that you know there's, there's this you know, two or three feet of treadmill sticking out the back. That didn't need to be there. And in office environments, that's critical because pre- space is so precious. A lot of people are working in a small cubicle or their desks, mm. they're, they're, a long treadmill would stick out into an aisleway and people would be tripping over it. So I noticed the treadmill needed to be much shorter to be in a commercial office environment. So wider, shorter. And then I noticed that the treadmill was really struggling electromechanically at slow speeds. Treadmills are engineered to go fast so people can run on them for exercise. And when you do that, you have to make the peak efficiency of the motor uh, adjusted for the top speed, so eight or ten miles an hour, uh, you know, fifteen or eighteen kilometers per hour. Um, when you do that and you slow it down to a, a slow walk, which is how people use a treadmill desk, now the motor is underpowered. It's inefficient. That translates to a lot of excess heat, and then it translates to noise. The treadmill makes a whirring sound. You'll hear that. In a, in a health mm. club or fitness center, if somebody slows the treadmill all the way down, and the, and the speed of the belt tends to hesitate, it doesn't feel very smooth. And I was experiencing that because I was using a fitness treadmill and trying to slow it down. So I knew that the engineering of that motor was wrong; it had to be redone to to, to really be a, a good product for for an office environment. Because I knew in an office you don't want a noisy product; that's people are going to object to that. They're not going to want the long, skinny treadmill sticking out behind their desk. So these were the things I just observed from tinkering around with my own product. And then we got to work uh, from, with our business connections. By that, by that point along the way, I had uh, uh, reconnected with an old uh, business associate who, was, who had managed a – he was president of a large uh, commercial uh, fitness company here in the United States, a company called Precor. He was, had been president of the company, recently retired, and I re, you know, sort of dragged him out of retirement and said, what do you think of this treadmill desk idea? I'm thinking of going into this business. 
And he did some research, started to put out a Google News alert, started following what was going along. And by that point, people were selling treadmill vests. The market had already started. There, we have, we'd already, right. By the time we entered, we had three good competitors. Mm-hmm. So uh, my partner, Paul, joined me, and um, we uh, teamed up with a manufacturing partner uh, overseas that had uh, extensive uh, engineering and, and development capabilities. So that, by that point, I got out of my garage and got partnered with a real manufacturing partner of treadmills. And they started... Uh, well, I had already cut up a couple of frames and built some wide, short treadmills, but they weren't very good. So I'd taken it as far as I could with the resources I had, and we brought in a manufacturing partner. We gave them equity in the company at the very beginning, so they had mm. skin in the game. And they helped us develop the first 12 beta units where we, we actually built 12 units that were along the lines of my, my first ideas, wider, shorter, engineered to go slower, a simpler controller. You didn't need to have lots of whistles and bells that you'd have in a fitness center because people are focusing on their work. They don't really care about how fast they're going, how many calories they're burning uh, most of the time. So we eliminated all that. We changed the whole controller interface for the treadmill. Uh, so our manufacturing partner was on board. They, they shipped us a dozen beta units. We put those into real real envi- real work environments and had got 12 beta users going and gathered feedback for about six months. You know, how do you like the width? Is it wide mm-hmm. enough? Is it short enough? What do you think of the noise? And we, we made a lot of tweaks to the product uh, during that beta phase. Now, all this time, we had no revenues going. We were doing the seat of our pants, but we wanted to make sure before we committed to a manufacturing run that we had the product dialed in. And I'll pause you there for a quick second. Um, how did you find a manufacturing partner? Because we had been in business before, both of us in, in the fitness and the, the, the fitness industry, we had relationships with manufacturers that we were able to draw mm. upon. Um, so that just came from you know having been older guys who had, who had been in, been in, in a related mm. industry. Um, mm-hmm. Otherwise, that would have been a tough task, and that's a big barrier to entry. You know, somebody trying to start up something like this on their own, no, they'd have to reach out to agents in Asia or uh, you know or or in their own country. We, we thought of making it domestically, but but. You know, someday we may make a domestic product that's of a higher price point, but to, to, to get the price point where it needs to be and run in, you know, have a, a company that's scalable in volume, we really need to be partnered with a company that had the ability to crank out thousands of these things, and, and we do. So, so we had these relationships from our prior business dealings. Okay. And so with that conversation with them, with the manufacturer, of course, you had that relationship, but they were going to put skin in the game, as you were saying. Um, did you offer them anything above equity? Or just equity? No, just, just equity. I mean, they, they, their skin in the game is their, you know, they built these, a lot of R&D and engineering uh, assets went into it and, and they, they built a dozen units and then they, uh, the manufacturing partner fronted the first uh, couple of containers of products. So, but, but that got the company off the ground without the need for investors. So that was key. Mm. At, at this point, we still, we still have not taken on any investors because we made the commitment at our stage in life that we didn't, and, and I've, I've been in these startups where, where you bring in, bring in venture capitalists before you even have revenues. You know, you, you end up with nothing. Um, you end up with so little at the end of the day that, um, and, and that model can work, you know, if you've got an Uber yeah. or an Airbnb or something like that, you know, if you have a tenth of a percent, you know, a billion dollar company, you, you did fantastic. <laughs> but but mm-hmm. in this case, we, we didn't want to be beholden to investors. We didn't want to have to hit their timelines. That, that can be extremely burdensome. We knew that we, we wanted to have the luxury to be able to, to run the beta trial as long as it needed to run. If the beta product was wrong, we wanted to be able to redo it. Um, we, we got mm-hmm. it pretty close on the first beta run, so we didn't make too many changes to the production models. We made a few, but nothing major. Okay. Um, so, so we were determined from our from our point of view. You know, we we have our lifestyles covered in terms of income. Um, we didn't, we don't need to be paying ourselves out of the gate. 
So we, we, we were committed to not taking on investors until we get to a revenue stream where we can get a good valuation or a respectable valuation before we really ramp up here. Okay. And how long did the beta stage take? Six months or 12 months? Close to 12 months. Um, I'm trying to remember. It was about just under 12 months. Okay. I'm still walking on one of the beta units now here in my house. <laughs> I kind of consider it still going to some degree. But, uh, yeah. but, no, but, but it was about 12 months later before we got our first shipment of production units. Okay. Now take us to the first shipment. And before the first shipment, how much had you invested in the business in total um, before you actually get, got that first shipment? Yeah. My, my, my business partner and I had put in t- t- together, we put in about $160,000, about $80,000 US each uh, between us. And that, that we had done that over the course of, of the past uh, about 18 months. Well, that's really to date. By the time that the first production ship, maybe that number was more like about 50000 each, about $100,000. And that's not counting mm. our time. So, mm. you know, that's just the hard dollars we put in for uh, d- different marketing efforts and, and research and um, travel and uh, the first alpha units that I had tinkered together and, and fabricated on my own. So it's, it's, I have to go back and look and see how we spent that money. But, um, uh, yeah, by that point, we had done some we produced a photo shoot and we had um, and we started to make, you know, put in some marketing efforts, building a building a, an e-commerce website, that sort of thing. So, so that's okay. about how much cash had gone into the game. And, and had we taken it on from investor from venture capital, we'd have probably had to give, a, give up a big chunk of the company for that kind of money because we had no revenues. Mm-hmm. And so your first shipment, how many did you get and how did you get them to market? Yeah, we brought in a, a, a 48 of these or 52 of these rather fit in a container. So we've got a, we brought in two containers pretty much back to back. They were, they were about spaced about two months apart, uh, but we, we really hadn't even sold through the first container. It was just it was the, the factory wanted to keep running them because they were set up. Um, so, so really, you could look at it as 104, one large container uh, came over here at once. And then we had set up uh, relationships. We, we, we gave a little bit of equity to another partner who's in the office furniture space. They, do, mm-hmm. they sell to high-end, uh, to large companies. They're a contract office furniture supplier. And so we set up we set them up with a dealer pricing structure where they were able to uh, they're they're selling into their market uh, these treadmill desks into uh, commercial offices. Then again, drawing from our prior business experiences, we had had um, relationships with dealers of commercial fitness equipment. So we've we've established uh, half a dozen dealers in the commercial fitness market. Now they haven't done quite as well with the product because it's they're used to selling the gyms and fitness centers. This product's really an office. Mm an office sale, but they've made some sales too. So our, our dealers were able to uh, get, get some into market right away. And then we did just a little bit of old, good old fashioned knocking on doors, uh, you know, shoe leather type, type salesmanship. Um, and I opened up an office here at WeWork. Uh, WeWork is a community office environment. It's, it's all around the world now. They, I, I know they have some offices in Sydney. I don't know if they're in Melbourne. They probably are. But they, right. they rent office space to small business startups and, and to big companies. I mean, P- Pinterest is in the one that I'm in. And they, some larger companies are now, now putting office teams in different cities. And they're renting space at WeWork, which is a community office environment. So we rented space there, uh, one, because we needed some office space. But also, I, I knew it would be a good marketing opportunity. I put my desk in this very public environment. And I've been making mm. sales to, to some of the uh, other members of WeWork. And then I, I go around to the different WeWorks and offer to do these lunch and learns. So I've gotten, I've gone out and just hit the ground with these lunch, lunch and learn demonstrations uh, where I put on a little mm. short presentation talking about the health and fitness benefits and the mental creative benefits of working at a treadmill desk. And then I bring one out and have people try it out. And so I've made sales that way. And then finally, of course, online marketing. Now, the online marketing, we've been very 
focused and, and, and limited geographically because we're uh, try, trying to develop the right message before we pour a lot of money into, uh, into AdWords and so forth. So the dealers in the office furniture, the fitness dealers, um, some uh, in-person demonstrations, and then online marketing. Those have been our four channels of marketing so far. Okay. I love the fact that you're not shying away from you know, things that may not in today's world be translated as scalable. You know, lunch and learns are typical sort of, you know, maybe 10, 20 people maximum, I'm assuming. And it's difficult to scale that. But then if people get excited about it, I can see how it can translate into word of mouth. It can give you video content. It can give you something to talk about and for people to share at. How have you found that sort of one-on-one smaller type marketing to, to try and scale it? And how can you coach somebody who's looking at such an option as a business model? Yeah, well, our product sells for $2,500. So, so working in a, in a one-on-12, you know, lunch and learn environment, actually, it, it makes sense for something that sells for this price point. Now, the scalability, mm. if we were to set up other cities, I mean, one of the, it's funny you bring that up because we're actually we were discussing that at one of our meetings last week. <laughs> you know, uh, somebody like me or a couple people in every major market could, could set up shop at a WeWork. And, and run these lunch and learns and bring people in. So we think it actually is scalable, but because you don't need a lot of units sold to make some money mm. and, and, and to get out in front of people. But no, the, the only way we're going to get volume is through online marketing and online sales. Um, we're, we're just, uh, this just doesn't cost me anything to go do it. <laughs> I've, I've got my WeWork office. I pull the thing out. There's, there's very little cost involved in running a demonstration. And then it makes great fodder for our social media. Whenever I do one of these, I I put it up on our social media sites. I've got something to, t- to shout mm. about, and people see the product actually in use. So I always make a little video of the uh, whenever I'm doing a, a demonstration or a lunch and learn, and and, I, and it, again it becomes news to talk about to uh, to put out to our followers on our social media platforms. How did you get that very first customer? Uh, the, the beta units. The beta units all got sold. So we, we mm. I offered up the beta units to different uh, different people. I, I, I strategically targeted people I knew, largely friends and family, but also people I knew through business. A couple of them went to guys who I my son plays little league baseball here in Los Angeles, and I you know I'm one of the coaches, and I just met a, met a bunch of people, you know, a bunch of other uh, business people who were on the uh, coaching and coaching staff, and I just talking to them about what I'm doing. Well, one guy saw me on my laptop one day, so working on, looking at some pictures of our beta units, and asked me what we were up to. So um, I, I placed probably half of the beta units just through guys I knew through our, my, my, my kids' schools. Um, my, my business partner, Paul, placed a few. And then our office furniture partner, he, he came to us again through the, uh, the youth sports programs. So just networking through my friends and family was able to place these 12 beta units. And we got them in some great environments. Uh, one of the companies we're at is a company called Ring which is an internet doorbell company, ring.com. They make an internet doorbell. You stick on the outside of your house so you can, somebody rings your doorbell, they appear on your smartphone and you can answer the door, doorbell or talk to them from anywhere in the world. So Ring, a very innovative company and they're really taking off. They're, they're flying here. So they put one in their, their office environment, a company you may have heard of called Zip Recruiter, also based here in Santa Monica. They're an online mm-hmm. recruiting company. They put a couple, they put a beta unit in for testing, um, but, you know, I had them at a variety of, I had, I had one at a law firm. Turns out lawyers are big, big buyers. They, lawyers love our product for a variety of reasons I can get into. So we got one in a law firm environment. Um, I got one at my accountant's office. Uh, so an accounting firm and accountants like these products also. So by the end of the beta trial, all those, all those beta users, users bought the product. And that was actually our first source of revenue is, is we sold the beta right. units. And so, obviously, it's a high-ticket item, but the market is huge, and I'm not sure what the typical office desk 
and chair, etc., would be purchased for in a, in a typical office. But it looks like it'll be a big, big jump. So what what are you doing to grow your business right now, uh, now that you're kind of moving into the more sort of phase where you want to start scaling? Yeah, well, one of the things we'll have to do at some point, Davis, is we'll have to come out with a lower price version. This is the product we have today is what I call an executive desk. Um, but but all sorts of people are buying them. They're being they're being purchased for community shared desk environments. I just sold a half a dozen of them to Siemens, the electronics company here in California. So the product we have, we're having to. This is one of the things we're learning along the way. We'll have to have a lower price item that can ship easier and sell it and address a lower price point, especially for the education market. At some point, these will be in schools, but it won't be the product we have today. Um, you know, we'll have to expand the product line. What's your marketing strategy now to get to the next level? One of the things we did is we decoupled the treadmill from the desk. So we have, if you go on our shop page at unsit.com, you'll see you, if you can buy the treadmill by itself and put it under an existing standing desk that you already have. So this is something we learned early mm. on. Many people okay. already own a stand-up desk. In fact, in the research we did, in the market research, we found that there were a million stand-up desks already in use today. So that meant people have already made the commitment to getting up out of their chair. Now, I knew mm. from personal experience that you can't stand that long. You stand at your desk for about 10 minutes, your legs get achy. So I just knew that that's not going to work. It, it helps. The standing desk is good. And for certain type of, of desk tasks, standing desks are fantastic. But, but people were getting these adjustable light desks. They would stand up for a few minutes, then they would lower the desk back down. Uh, and there's been some other good products that allow you to stand on like a wobble board to keep your legs moving a little bit. But so what we saw the opportunity is we could just sell our treadmill by itself without the desk and let people put it under their existing stand-up desk. So this is something we learned early on that we didn't anticipate, that we're now selling about half of our treadmills sold don't come with a desk. People, are, people already own their own desk, or they've sourced a different desk that they like better. You know, mm. the, the desk that we we're selling is a, is a generic uh, commercial you know, adjustable height desk, but people might have their own or they might want to source a different one for, for design reasons or cosmetic reasons. And so, again, about half the treadmills we've sold are going to people who already own their own desk. So that's, that's a big market opportunity on their own. The people who already own the stand-up desk can just buy our treadmill. Then people who want the complete solution, we've got it for them. And uh, we, we've, got, it's, we've got the whole product together. So you know, that, that's a more expensive proposition. But uh, again, we've been able to... Uh, to, to fill a need there from people who have already made that, that commitment to get out of their chair and stand up at work. Now they just add the treadmill. They can walk at work. Right. And so what's working really well for you from a marketing perspective? So you've gotten into companies like Siemens. Um, how are you achieving those transactions? Is it still one-on-one -on -one or is there something that you're trying to test out in a, in a scalable way? Yep. They're, the sales are coming. The Siemens sale, for example, came because we have a demo unit at a, at a commercial office showroom. So having pro the product out in the field has proven to be the best way to attract new customers. People see it, they try it someplace else, then they contact us. Um, you know, mm. get, getting your hands on and trying this thing out. And, and then, you know, just we, we've been uh, experimenting with different AdWords and, and, and we've been testing some Facebook ads, uh, trying to understand who is the who's the persona and how do you find them out there and what messages will appeal to them. It turns out something, again, we didn't anticipate when we started, a message that's worked really well and really resonated and attracted a lot of people and increased our site, our traffic on our site, is the concept of doing two things at once. You know, people's time is so precious these days and they're, you know, everybody's mm. competing for your, for your time. 
And, and so by being able to exercise while you're working at the same time and accomplish two things at once turns out to be a very appealing message that we didn't, I didn't even think about when we started this company. We, we stumbled across <laughs> that. So that's, if you, go on, if you go on the homepage at unsit.com, you'll see that's our primary message. Is the, the headline we've got on our homepage is, it says, your job and your health do not have to conflict. Save time, save fit while you work. Um, so, so that's something that's very appealing to people. And, and uh, again, so we've, so we've been having to tinker around and, and experiment and, you know, A-B test different, different messaging campaigns and see what, what gets people to the site. Um, one of the things we have learned, it's hard to get people all the way to the, to the, to, to the shopping cart and to add to cart when the, when the price tag is so high. Most, almost every sale we've made, people, with, with a few exceptions, people have always wanted to call. They've either scheduled a phone call with me or they've... Uh, you know, uh, messaged in some questions, but they want to verify that there's somebody behind the company before mm. they plunk down that kind of money. So that that's been a that's been a, a barrier we've had to overcome. So I've added videos to the website where people I've actually got live demonstrations I've done on video, um, and and those get those help sales a lot online by being able to people being able to see the product in use. And then we've added a lot of good customer testimonials that we've got on. We've got a whole page dedicated to testimonials, and when people can see real life users. Um, actually hear their, you know, read about their personal success stories, see how their desk is set up. All those things help build um, confidence that people take the leap and, and buy, you know, buy something this expensive. And it's not just the price tag. They have to rearrange their office furniture and rearrange their whole lifestyle. Mm. Um, so that's something we've overcome as well. That's great. And I know we're, we're sort of running out of time here, but I want to flip your message just that you've just walked me through the last two, three minutes into coaching mode for somebody who is in the process of maybe launching a new startup or launching a, a manufacturing type business or a physical product. You've talked about how you've identified a new message point that you didn't know was going to resonate so much in the market at the beginning. You've identified how customers wanted to, you to decouple the product. Um, which you didn't expect at the beginning. You've identified how you know people are wanting to sh- see demonstrations or have somebody on the phone. So all these little things that are making a difference on your bottom line. So I wanted you to flip that le- those learnings into a bit of a coaching process for somebody to walk through in their head. So what what have you learned in those things that somebody can take away from from this conversation? You know, you, you've got to you've got to go into business with the expectation that that your plan. Is going to is going to have to be changed, and where the way you see the product and the way you see it going is probably not how it's going to turn out. And you got to be willing to change and let go. Mm. I mean, our our first website that we put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into, I was so in love with, was completely wrong. It was a beautiful branding site, and I and I I hope I preserved it somewhere because it was a great website. But it took me about a month to finally let go and realize that site was not going to sell. People loved the site. I got a lot of compliments on it. But it did not sell because it didn't have, didn't show the product off. It didn't. We didn't understand the funnel of how we're going to, you know, get people from the landing page all the way through to the shopping cart. We basically had to scrap it and start all over. Mm. I wouldn't say we completely scrapped it because we had a we had a good uh, a brand idea already developed. Um, but so, so my my message to people who are starting up is you got to be willing to let your you know however passionate you are of your product or your service that you've started up. You're going to probably it's probably not going to end up that way by the time you're. You, you get to revenues because uh, you, your original vision is probably not how the market wants it. So you've got to be willing to change, let go, you know, adapt, you know, switch up uh, your strategies and, and make changes to the product. Um, I had a lot of things in the product that I thought were hits. I, I thought everybody would want a handrail on the front edge of the desk. It turned out nobody wanted the handrail. I had to let that one go. So you've you, you got to be willing to let go of a lot of your original ideas and change quickly 
And, and that, that's, that's hard to do emotionally. You, you get very passionate and emotional about some of these things that you put so much into and you think is going to work. <laughs> yeah. So that'd be, that'd be my first message is be willing to change and let go because it was what you saw and what you envisioned it being is probably not what it's going to be. <laughs> I know. And, and the key thing for you is you took the step out. You're, you're in the marketplace and you're getting the feedback and you're, you're making those, those changes, but you're getting closer to some of those revenue targets and can you share a little bit, what, what are some of those revenue targets that you're seeing in the next 12 months? This is maybe what we're looking to do, or have you already started to hit some of those numbers? Well, well we're, we're way behind. Our, our, first, uh, our first revenue targets, you know, we thought we'd come out of the beta trial and get, get to thousands within 12 months. We're nowhere near as that. Mm. We're now starting to catch traction. Mm. So it, it took us about 12 months. We, had to, we went back and rejiggered the whole website. And then we started realizing that the, the dealer model is not going to be that successful. We've got to push more online. Um, then we discovered who is our market, which really, and we didn't know this until we started making some sales, lawyers are about half of our customers are lawyers. We had no idea. Mm. Uh, but it turns out there's, there's a variety of reasons. Lawyers, one, they have the, the, the uh, disposable income. They have the large office space to devote to an extra desk. Um, they're stuck behind a desk all day. It's the nature of their profession. Uh, lawyers are well-educated, which means they're going to be very aware of their health and fitness. Um, and then mentally, lawyers need to be – they like the idea of being on their feet, moving around because they're – it doesn't seem that way. But, but being a lawyer, is, it requires a lot of creativity and mental prowess to be able to think through legal arguments and yeah. so forth. So doing it up on your feet and moving is much more successful. So it turns out lawyers – are a big part of our market. We didn't know that going in. We recrafted our message and we targeted marketing at lawyers. And that's, been, that's proven to be very successful. We also didn't realize, even though there, there is a couple of competitors out there, treadmill desks have already been sold before we entered the market. We thought that was a good sign that there's already competitors. We, I wouldn't, I've been very nervous that there weren't any competitors out there. But I thought we were past the early adopter phase, but we're not. We're still in the early adopter phase of this uh, particular product. So that just means it's, it's a, you know, we got a couple of years to go before the, the next big wave really takes off. So one strategic business decision we made is we've stayed cash positive every step of the way. And that's something that's hard to do in this day and age. And people want to go fast and take on venture capital and have a burn rate and all that. And for, yeah. for a software startup, that can work. Uh, but when you've got a hardware product with a lot of, uh, a lot of investment in uh, manufacturing costs and inventory, you know, you, you got to be very careful about that. So we were determined and we've stayed true to it. Every step of the way, we have cash in the bank and we're cash positive. So it means we have to go slower. Um, we, we can't ramp up as fast as we would. I'd love to throw $100,000 at AdWord campaigns, you know, and see what works. But, yeah. you know, we, we, only put it, we only put out as much as, as, as we're making sales. So, mm-hmm. so we're, we're doing it a little bit different strategy than a lot of these, uh, you know, a software startup might take off on. It's interesting that I had an interview just the other day and um, it's, a, it's an Australian company founder who started um, a similar thing to like an Airbnb, but for camper vans or um, what's the other word for camper vans? Um, caravans. So, so he was basically saying he's got competitors in the market. Therefore, he doesn't need to do all the heavy lifting of educating a marketplace where you don't have any competitors, so, which is what you're talking about as being. Um, early adopters or, or pioneers in that space. Like I've worked the last 15 years in, in the corporate space and the last sort of five, 10 years in large companies like GE Capital and stuff like that. And I can, I can count how many stand-up desks were in an office space of 3,000 people, probably two or three. So <laughs> I get what you mean, you know, you're having to break new ground. And, uh, but it's, it's still good because once you do that, then you, you know that the uptake could be pretty big. I want to start bringing this to, to a close, and I really do appreciate your time. Um, I want to ask you, Rob, what would you say 
um, over the last number of years that you've been in business was the biggest uh, breakthrough moment that you always look back to and say, gee, that was that was a really good moment. You know, I, I would try, I would go back in 1994. There was a large earthquake here in Los Angeles and my, my wife had a chain of restaurants started. I was starting up this uh, fitness spare parts business and our, our businesses literally got shut down by an earthquake. I mean, the ground shook underneath us mm. and it, it closed our companies down because our, our storefronts were uh, were uninhabitable. And, and I had a couple of weeks off as a result of that. In those couple of weeks, we, we, we couldn't work. We had no business. You know, it, was, it was a bit shocking. You know, you, first you're freaked out, and then there's sort of this you know, calm before the storm kind of yeah. feeling. But, but that moment got me to, you know, I, I, actually during that two weeks, I went to a, a seminar by a guy named Tony Robbins, mm. who puts on these, <laughs> these terrific self-help seminars. And, and that, that really literally shook up our, our, our relationship to business because our customers, our customers started calling saying, when and where are we reopen? And it was that experience, I think, that really turned my head about the, the value of having, you know, uh, dedicated, loyal customers who were willing to follow you anywhere. And we're actually leaving notes and cards on the storefront of our of, of the door in our, of our storefront saying, when will you be back? Put me on your mailing list. I want to I want to know when and where you're going to re- reopen. Wow. So we, we were really touched by that emotionally. But also from a business point of view, we saw that, hey, when you've got your know, loyal customers that loyal and that devoted, uh, willing to leave their card on the door and follow you anywhere. Uh, it's priceless. And, um, you know, we worked, we worked hard to, to earn that kind of uh, dedication mm. from customers. But I, I would see that as a, it, uh, it changed the way I view the businesses that I was running at that time. Yeah. I love that story because it just speaks to your, your philosophy of how you operate and your brand. And it's just a customer is just not a number, but it's somebody who, who you then begin to associate with, with yeah. that. Sort hey, of- did, uh, my partner, Paul, from, came from a company called Precore. When, when, he, when I got him to join in on the treadmill desk development, the first thing he had me do and stop and step back, and I was resistant, is we developed a brand. And I think this is important to, to, to work in if you can mm. in, in the time frame that you have. But, but we stopped and went through a brand development process. And I had never done one before, but, but Paul brought in professional brand ID development people. And they, we went back and forth for over the course of about 10 weeks on phone conferences. We, we all flew up to Seattle a couple times and got together for meetings. But it was a purely creative process to really identify what's the message of the brand, what should the name be, what should the logo look like. Um, the color scheme, what sort of voice do we want to have in our marketing messages, the tone. And these were all kind of ethereal, creative things. I thought, frankly, I thought we were wasting our time and money. I just wanted to build a treadmill desk and get it out there. But, but having that brand ID was, I think, the most important thing we did with Unsit because now everything we do flows from there. When I go to develop our website, we have what's called the style guide that shows our fonts, our colors, our logo, um, the, the, the tone of the message, the feel. The whole feel of the brand is documented in this style guide. Mm-hmm. And everything we do, whether I make a, a, you know, a T-shirt or we build a website or we're um, you know, developing an ad, we know we go back to that book and it guides us. And, and it sets the tone of the company. And that was so vitally important. Um, and I think it really sets us apart when I look at my competitors. They have, they have good products too. But our brand is, uh, is, is clearly uh, set apart from them. So one of the advice I would give anybody listening to st- who's involved in a startup, whether it be a service, a software, a product, you've got to develop a, a brand. And that brand has to be strong. It has to be clear. It has to be well identified. And you have to get it to the point where you've got that style guide. And that, that's been the guiding force of this company. I've been really, really proud of it. And I think it's been really an, an, important, uh, an mm. important exercise that we did before we, before we went into business. Now, thank you for sharing that. I love that because 
Um, it does feel like a waste of money, um, I guess, because you're just investing it in into sort of theories and, and just theorizing over different aspects of different things. But um, I think from your experience, that's a real good inspiration to, to ask people to say, do it. If you, whatever you can afford to invest in that level, do it rather than just running blind and, and putting anything that you can together. I think that's really important. Yeah, no, you, and you got to get you got to get with somebody who's outside of your company, who's outside of your product, who can see it from a from a third party, and who and who's been through the brand development process before. Because in the end, it will help you understand what are you really trying to accomplish. What's your real purpose? What is really your mission of why you're trying to do this? Everybody thinks is they want to make a buck or they, you know, they, they want to make somebody's life better with software. I hear that one all the time. But but really, there's something much deeper underneath it that you're trying to accomplish, a deeper message and purpose. You got to know what that is, and your brand has to represent it. Um, and and so it really becomes. I mean, it, it, you know, all the, a lot of the tension and the the craziness goes away once you've got that style guide developed. You know who you are. It's like having an identity. You know, you know who you are. You know where you're going. And and what, no matter what the world throws at you and how how badly things might things seem they're falling apart, you know, you've got your brand and it's guiding you and it, you can carry that torch through it. So you, you got to have a brand. You got to really spend time to make sure it's, to develop it well. Mm. Love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Now, Rob, um, what are the best two books that you have read that have been an inspiration to you along your entrepreneurial journey that you would love to recommend to somebody listening today? Well, you know, <laughs> again, I, I go back to those early Tony Robbins books that Awaken the Giant Within, that goes way back. And then for this uh, venture with Unsit, it's been uh, Dr. James Levine's book called Get Up. There, there's a business story in there as well as a, uh, as a uh, health and fitness story. Mm-hmm. So Get Up by Dr. James Levine, and I'm a big fan of Awaken the Giant Within. And then there's the third one, Anything by Douglas Rushkoff. He gives you a great, uh, great reflection on media in the modern age. Um, but Douglas Rushkoff is a writer about, about uh, media and the internet in, in the modern age. Awesome. We will link all of that up in, um, in the show notes. So for everybody listening, you can go and grab those books and put them into your, into your library. Rob, what is the best way for people to connect with you? Well, our website has all the info on it. It's www.unsit.com. And we, we've got a Facebook page, uh, unsit.greatmindsmove. And we're also on LinkedIn, uh, unsit. But uh, the web- website's the best way. We've got videos up there that show off the product. There's, a, there's a, a page I'm really proud of on the website called Why Unsit. And I've compiled all the different articles and studies I've come across in the last couple of years about the benefits of, uh, of walking while, while you're working and I've got them filtered in different categories. There's articles about creativity, productivity, health, fitness. Um, so, so there's a ton of stuff up there, both in video format and in, uh, and in different articles. And we've got a newsletter section, too, of stuff that we've produced. So start with the website. You can, you can connect with us via email there. There's a contact page and, a, and, a, uh, and there's an old-fashioned landline if you want to pick up the phone and call. <laughs> that's right. Old-fashioned landline. I hardly use my landline. So that's good. But unsit.com to reach out to rob and um, if there's anything that you spoke about today that intrigues you or you want to find out a little bit more about the product feel free to reach out to rob at unset.com or on facebook or linkedin 
Rob, before I ask my last question, I do want to thank you. I know we had to reschedule um, once or twice, but you, you made the time, you, you made an effort to come and give us your absolute best and uh, totally loved um, everything that you have shared. Maybe we'll schedule another conversation, another day just to dig more into, into the stuff that you guys are doing and follow up on how the, how the journey is going. But I have one more question for you. I do want to ask you, when all is said and done, do you think about legacy? And if you do, what do you want to leave as a legacy and be remembered for and tell us why? Well, I'd, I'd like to be remembered as the guy who got people up out of their chairs and moving again. And the, the reason is, is it's, it's been a huge benefit in my life. It's, it's really uh, improved the quality of my health, not just physically, but emotionally and mentally, too. When you're sitting in a chair all day, you just, you're lethargic and run down by the end of the day. And it's just because your body's not meant to sit and hold still all day. It's meant to be up and moving. So uh, I'd like to be remembered as the guy who got people up out of their chairs and moving. I love it. I, and I'm totally inspired by that. And I've been sitting on a chair for, for years um, in an accounting sort of environment. And all of us do that. So getting up and walking around while you're doing your work, I think that is an amazing thing. So keep persevering and keep charging along because I think um, it, it can be a, a game changer for a lot of people out there in their health. So ladies and gentlemen, that was Rob Jacobs. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. And Rob, I hope you you got your hopes up that you can actually do what you're called to do in this life and chase your dreams. Head on over to businessjournals.com forward slash Rob J and grab your special PDF highlight reel of everything that we spoke about here today. We've summarized everything for you, all the steps, all the notes that Rob has been walking us through. And remember to click subscribe on your podcast player to connect with Rob, go to unsit.com and check out everything that they're doing there. Rob, thank you so much for being on the Business Generals podcast today, for sharing your story with us. We're absolutely grateful you are a true business general. Davis, thank you so much. It's an honor to be on the program. I value what you do. And just a, one last note to your listeners. I clicked past uh, the 5,500 step mark and a little bit over uh, three miles of walking while we've been uh, recording this podcast. So very, very, very pleased with that. And again, I uh, look forward to hearing uh, this and other podcasts on your program. Thanks for the good work you do. Thank you so much. And thanks for sharing that. That's inspirational. 5,000 steps in just over an hour. So that's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening to the Business Generals podcast. Connect with us at businessgenerals.com and grab the full show notes and access a ton of free resources. Subscribe to the Business Generals podcast so that you do not miss an episode and help us reach more people by leaving us a positive review on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. We look forward to your company on our next episode. Until then, remember that you are a true business general. The Business Generals podcast, helping you maximize your startup business ideas, take control of your personal finances, and get the most out of your professional career.